I was looking around in my my own personal community and, you know, most of my friends were starting to get married and having children. And I was doing this crazy thing, you know, basically becoming a partner in this website that was really thrilling to me, but I think was really kind of mystifying to a lot of other people. And, you know, I think in those kinds of moments when you know it's time to take a risk and you know that people that you care about and whose approval that you and support you really want, you might not get. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, how Christine Barbaric and her co-founders built the wildly popular digital media site Refinery29. Christine always knew from a young age she wanted to go into publishing. As a kid, she'd create her own magazines. I'm saying that in quotations because she would cut up books and magazines and put them together. And it was quite the start because she would go on to work for major publications, places like Gourmet Magazine, The Daily and The New Yorker before creating Refinery29, which today reaches 225 million women around the world every month. But when she was taking that leap, the road that would lead to success wasn't exactly clear. We've all been in a place like this before. Here she is to tell you her story. Christine Barbaric, welcome to No Limits. <gasps> Thank you, Rebecca. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to have you with us. You're the global editor-in-chief and co-founder of Refinery29. We had your colleague, Amy Emmerich, mm-hmm. on not that long ago. We love her. We love Refinery29. So I love her, too. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk to you about how you ended up in this whole business as a creator of Refinery29. Wow, it's a that's a long story. It's um 13 years now. And um you know, I I grew up in publishing and in, in sort of classical magazine publishing. I worked at Condé Nast for about 10 years and um and worked at a lot of different kinds of publications. I worked at the New York Post and I think that when um 2005 that was when we launched Refinery29, but around 2003, 2004, this thing called blogs were were sort of developing, and everyone was kind of scratching their heads and asking themselves, like, they couldn't even, there was like a blob, they couldn't really, like, <laughs> say the word, and it was, it was really kind of a very interesting um, development that was happening, and um, digital media was kind of beginning to take form, and um, I met Philip and Justin, who are co-CEOs, and um, it just seemed like a really exciting opportunity, especially because, you know, at that point in 2004, like, Twitter wasn't around yet. I know that Net-A-Porte had, like, just launched. It was just such a new frontier. Mm -hmm. And I think even then, we could really see, at least I could, having been in publishing and in the media world for about, you know, 12, 13 years at that point, um, I could see things changing. I could see the the economy changing. I could see the attitudes towards magazines changing. Um, you know, there was just a much different energy around media and how how information was being exchanged, and this real need for people to participate. And um, 
I was really excited by the opportunity to just completely immerse myself in this new medium and really have the creative space to make something without a lot of, like, sort of helicoptering, a lot of scrutiny. Which is what happens anytime you're in a big company. It is. And I think that in some ways it can be great, you know, if you're, if you have great mentors and you have, like, really, um, really skilled, capable people that are confident in themselves and really feel um, confident in helping to elevate, you know, younger, you know, more junior people. But that's With not, big ideas. Yeah, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And um, and this was just a really, a really rare opportunity to build something from the ground up in an industry that was just really taking shape. And um, it was terrifying. <laughs> if I'm going to be really honest, I mean, at that point, I was in my early 30s. And I think that when you, you know, as a woman, when you're, well, as anyone really, but, you know, I think particularly for me as a woman, you know, I was looking around in my my own personal community and, you know, most of my friends were starting to get married and having children. And I was doing this crazy thing, you know, basically becoming a partner in this website that was really thrilling to me, but I think was really kind of mystifying to a lot of other people. And you know, I think in those kinds of moments when you know it's time to take a risk and you know that people that you care about and whose approval that you and support you really want, you might not get. What pushed you over the edge? How long was this thought in your head that you needed to get out and do your own thing? I think that I've always had this um, urge in me to just be able to speak my mind. And I don't mean that in an irresponsible way. At least I've really tried very hard to be um, to be productive with my opinions and with my ideas. But I think that that stage of life, you know, sort of the turning point, you know, of turning 30 and being in your early 30s, you really start to think about, and I don't know if you did this, but you really start to think about, like, what is my life about? Mm-hmm. What is my purpose? You know, what do I really want my legacy to be? You know, both professionally and personally, and I think that you really start to take to take serious stock of the contributions that you're making on a daily basis. And I think what was really exciting to me was this real um, opportunity to create a platform for women that didn't exist before. And it was something that I was craving, and I yes. knew that you know, Pierre Gilardi, who's another one of our founders, we have four founders. Um, she was, you know, she's younger than me, but we were in the same predicament. We didn't really feel like, you know, much of women's media was speaking to us. Yep. And I think that's such a key point. Um, and it comes up so often here on the podcast with women who feel like something is missing and you go out to create the thing that you want. But then, of course, you have the people who say, no, that's not going to work. Who would want that? I would want that. And if you feel that you would want it, then it's at least worth testing. I think that's very true. And I think it's really as as worried as you may be when you're um, on the verge of taking a big life risk, you know that there's going to be some, I guess, scrutiny or some hesitance or skepticism. And for me, there was so much more of it than I was expecting. It really? Was really, yeah. Because you're a self, you you believe in yourself. I think that it's not really a, a a super solid theory, but I've I've thought about it over the years, and 
I think that sometimes when people take big risks, if they, you know, up and move to another country or they, you know, marry somebody, you know, having known them for three months or do things that feel impulsive to other people, I think it makes everyone kind of a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it makes everyone sort of like um, kind of move around a little bit and kind of ask, you know, question their own situations in a good or bad way. And I think that for me, leaving a really secure job with benefits and, you know, a decent salary and, you know, a you know somewhat um, secure future seemed outrageous to a lot of people. But I think it just I think that that's something I'm much more aware of today when I encounter skepticism or ch- or challengers when I have a big idea or an idea that might be particularly risky. And um, I just really kind of try to be sympathetic of where someone's resistance might be coming from mm-hmm. because it does help me to figure out how to be more persuasive and how to get people um, excited about an idea that could potentially, you know, have some risks attached to it. So it's 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 definitely a process, but I think that, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that before, but, you know, taking risks in your life is is hard enough as it is, but having to really shoulder the burden of people that you care about, you know, who are really like not being as supportive as they could be is just tough. Absolutely. It really yeah. does make you tougher. Well, so at the very end of the interview, I'll ask you about the worst advice that you've received in your career. And you're laughing. I'm um, laughing just because um, Chelsea, who's from from um, our team, who's in the control room, knows this advice. And it's just I've, I've spoken about it before and people just can't believe it. OK, well, I'm looking forward to that. OK, good. Um, but but to that point, so much of the time, the bad advice or the skepticism, it's not coming from the haters. It's coming from people who care about you, who want you to succeed. And they're afraid of you taking on those risks because for them, they just want that security blanket. They want to make sure that it exists under you and they want you to be A-OK. The problem is when you're in a job like you were in publishing where you're not taking the risks, you feel like you could be doing more than what you're doing. And you want to at least test the waters and know Am I right? Am I on to something? Because not knowing, I think, is so much worse and so much, for me at least, any time in my life where I've hesitated to pursue something, whether it's, you know, raising your hand in a meeting and saying something and speaking up and then somebody else says the same thing that you were going to say and that's a terrible feeling. Like, damn it. Yeah, I had that idea. Or something bigger where you're sitting back and waiting for it to happen. I mean, I don't know. People listening right now will probably think about the number of random business ideas that you know you or I or anyone has come up with where you think something's good and then you kind of forget about it and then all of a sudden it's like in the store or online and everybody's talking about it. Anyway. I have one of those. You, what's yours? It's called the tableizer and it's these sort of those wedges that you can carry with you and put under your table so it doesn't wobble because I, you know, I, and there's nothing more annoying than having to wait for somebody to actually sort of stabilize <laughs> your table. And um, but apparently it exists now. So that's hilarious. Bravo to you. My my um, two of my dear friends from college, Miam and Deepa, claim that we invented Spanx. Um, uh, sitting on our our balcony in college. How um, what, what, they, they they said that we came up with 
the idea over a few beverages uh, for Spanx, but that we never actually ultimately pursued it. So, um, Sarah Blakely, if you're listening, you're welcome. I'm really I'm glad I left that that field open for you. <laughs> She's the one who put in all the blood, sweat, and tears. Though. Exactly. That's I was That's obviously totally joking. It's like so many of these ideas. It's all about execution. You have the idea, but can you execute on it? So you get to Refinery Twenty Nine. Mm-hmm. You begin that process of executing on this vision. How long was it before the vision that you had was also the thing that anybody consuming saw? I think that what's so beautiful about digital media is that it's so malleable and it's um it's just such an inspiring and flexible medium to work within. And I think in the very beginning, I think the toughest thing for me is is sort of this mistrust of content of digital content. I think that there was a lot of um, a lot of critics and people that were very um, that were very questioning of mm-hmm. the efficacy of of content that was created online, that especially was, that was, initially. Yes. So we really focused on making sure the content, you know, was hitting a really high standard and a high a high level of excellence. And I think that that was something that really set us apart in the beginning because of our love of content and storytelling. And I think the way that – and because Pierre and I and Philip and Justin, we cared so much about what the audience was responding to. So that was also something that I think was unique to us in that commenting existed. Mm-hmm. And at that point, a lot of publications that had – moved on to digital or at least expanded, you know, to have a digital companion weren't activating comments and, you know, didn't really want to incite, you know, conversations or or criticism or any kind of feedback. How do you balance that direct feedback, that immediate feedback with your own North Star? Because um, I, I think about this because so many businesses and people, they get lost I think a lot along the way where they're trying so hard to respond to that consumer, that customer, but at the same time that can really sometimes it can it can mess with your vision and it's hard to make some of those calls about what the audience wants versus what the reason, the purpose behind what you created. I think that's such a good question and I think there's so much nuance to it. Um one of the things I was not prepared for as Refinery29 gained, um, you know, gained audience and success and visibility was the degree of compromise I was going to have to confront. And, um, you know, I'm a very opinionated person. I have very decisive ideas about how I like to do things. Um, I love to see an idea a kind of left field idea be executed and win and mm-hmm. actually find an audience and and really have an impact and there's nothing that feels better than that knowing that you had a hunch and so many editors out there just have hunches about you know what people might want to be reading or what's missing from the landscape so i think that what i wasn't prepared for was the the certain degree of success of compromise that success was going to present to me and how I was going to navigate that. Because I think that you said something earlier that I really liked a lot um, was you 
you wanted to really, and, and you didn't really quite use these words. I can't actually remember now what the actual words you, you were that you used, but it was about like, what is the value of what I'm doing right now? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you think about the time that you're spending on something and am I doing everything that I really could be doing? And I think that that's where I tend to to feel frustration and resistance is when I know that something can be done better and for, for certain reasons or circumstances, I can't actually do that. And that's when I really start to start to kind of question my own judgment. So how did you end up in publishing in the first place? Was that something you wanted to do as a kid? Yes. I was always making little magazines by doing something pretty terrible. I would like cut up my parents' books. And um, <laughs> they weren't they weren't particularly precious about did their books. Did they know that you were cutting up their oh, books? Oh, yeah. They totally knew. And um, I didn't I didn't realize that, you know, you can't do that. Because there were sometimes magazines around, and I would actually cut up books and magazines and then paste them all together and make my own magazines when I was really, really young. And Did you I, have a name for your magazines? Um, I did have a name for a magazine, um, and it was called um, – it was called. It was a poetry magazine. And it was called The Word, and the and the sort of subtitle was for inquiring minds that want to grow. <laughs> That's I mean, perfect. that is super. Is that dorky. out there now? I I swear it's already no, out. It's out there now. I don't know. It was long. <laughs> it was like it's. I I even have like a mock up of the magazine. It's so embarrassing. I think it's awesome. Um, but I also wrote stories, and I was just really, I was just really into storytelling, and I just loved like true stories. I'm such, I'm so obsessed with documentaries and and memoirs. And I've read like so many memoirs of women's lives. They just really inspire me when, you know, reading about women's lives, you know, people that had struggles, had challenges, overcame them, did incredible things that they never expected they ever could. And I really try to kind of surround myself with those kinds of messages, because I think that I think that a lot of people think sometimes when you have a company that seems um, that seems really successful and, you know, I'm very um, – I feel really – I wouldn't say lucky because I think we've all worked really hard for the success that Refinery29 has established. But I think that people think that it's easy and that, you know, it get – or some at some point you, ha- you can stop working and that everything – you know, kind of falls into place. And I think that because of this industry, the way that it is, and the, you know, the, the economy and the effect that the um, the administration's having on the economy and just how, you know, the media is perceived, perceived now, I think that there's a lot of challenges that we've never anticipated before as a media company and, um, and certain responsibilities we have, you know, to produce really um, trustworthy, compelling, um, important, prioritized news. So... I think it's I think that it's a journey and um and I think that's honestly what keeps you young too. Yeah. It's just being very present in in actively making something better day after day after day. And it can sound like a grind and sometimes it feels that way, but there's nothing more gratifying than feeling committed to something that you know is going to have a lasting impact in people's lives. Yeah. Something um, that you've written about, and I've read a lot of your work on it, is infertility. Mm -hmm. And I haven't talked to our listeners about this, but I've dealt with 
a lot of fertility issues myself. You've written about your own frustrations, and you are pregnant today. I am. And I'm really happy for you. Thanks. Um, thanks. Really happy. This is, I haven't talked I'm to really our I'm really happy too. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. I'm very happy <laughs> for you, okay. given everything, especially everything that you've been through. Yeah. And um, I, I kind of want to talk to you about this idea, like, in the course of a career, to have this other thing that's happening that's so important to your life, and it's very time-consuming, and it's... Very costly. It, yeah, very costly. How have you thought about and managed that? Also a really great question, and thank you very much for for that, um, for just saying that. It's really, it's nice to hear. Um, it's been a really long journey. I think that I'm not somebody that grew up, you know, with baby dolls or, you know, dreaming about being a mom and... I'm just I just didn't really have those kinds of aspirations. It didn't really what I really dreamed about was I played with these like sort of career Barbies and I was like <laughs> I was always playing with like grown-up dolls and I couldn't wait to work and I couldn't wait to have a career and that was just something that Carry I, a briefcase. Yeah, exactly, wear a pantsuit and I just really dreamed about being independent and really having um having a creative professional life. And when I met my husband, I I met him in my late thirties. Um, you know, it began. I I began to see the the possibilities of what having a family would bring to my life. And somebody said something really beautiful to me um, because I had I had a lot of fears about it and a lot of hesitation because I wasn't sure how it was going to change my ability to do all of the creative pursuits that, you know, I love doing. You have a baby. It is your company. It is. It really is. And you've put really your is. whole life, I mean, literally, I think, it, I didn't mean to cut you off, but okay. I do think one of the complexities when you're thinking through the life and wanting to have a baby side of everything, because all of this stuff that you've put your whole life really towards you feel in some ways like it could be in jeopardy if you take your eye off of the sort of career prize and focus on having the baby and then the family. And obviously this is something that's becoming a much more public dialogue, which I'm so relieved about, that you know women can talk openly about the challenges that they've had and the, and the fears that they've had about losing traction in their careers yeah. to, to, to have a family, to raise a family, to participate in the family that they're creating um, as an active parent. And I think that that can be really, really tough. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously like thinking about that now, but um, I think that this person said to me, she said, I don't, she's like, I don't want you to worry. She goes, the most magical thing that happens when you have a child is you think your world's going to get smaller, but it just, everything gets bigger. Mm. Everything expands. And I think that that just really set me free in a lot of ways. And, um, and I also think that I'm glad that you use the word fertility and not infertility because I think there's such a stigma attached to it. And I think that there's a spectrum of fertility and everyone kind of rests somewhere on that spectrum because we know, I mean, if you've actually been through treatments, you know from testing that your fertility really changes. It changes as you get older. It changes when, you know, you you have nutrition sort of issues, when you have different kinds of hormonal issues and they're treated and or if you have endometriosis. So I think that there's 
a kind of um, misinformation out there about the sort of the direness of of mm-hmm. many people's um, fertility issues. And I'm happy that we've been able to open up a dialogue about that and really create less shame, you know, less worry, less um, less sort of a devastation about I can't have this, I'm never going to have this. And I just never believed that it was completely off the table for me. And I think timing, you know, everyone listening, I do really think that having a child, having a family, you know, starting a business, it's all timing. It really is just paying attention to your instincts and really listening to your heart. And I know that sounds so corny, but you know when something is happening in your midst that you have to pay attention to. And I remembered this when I met Philip and Justin and they asked me to join as a founder of Refinery29. And I was like, and I said this before, and it makes me laugh. I was like, oh, no. I was like, I can't. I got to do this. I was like, I got to do this. And I was like, it's going to be inconvenient. I'm going to be broke for a while. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty. I'm going to be terrified, you know, that I'm going to, I'm going to, um, the lights are going to get turned off and it's just going to be a huge disaster that's going to blow up in my face and my career will be over. But then on the other side, you're like, but what if this is a success? What if we do something that no one else has ever done before and it changes everything? It changes the game. And that's really what we did. And I think that you have to go in there without the intention of feeling like I'm only going to do this if I win. You have to go in there and say, I'm doing this because I have to do this because I know I'm going to grow from this. Mm -hmm. I think, too, that part of what was frustrating for me in not being able to start a family was I couldn't apply the same skills that I had to my career. There was something very easy to me about how to go about it. It took a long time, and I knew it was going to, and I knew I would be faced with a lot of challenges. But I knew how to do it, and I was and I was determined that I was going to have the the creative and professional life that I wanted and that I'd always dreamed about. There's just this this whole piece of it that you know I kind of call it the God factor, but it's it's really it's very mysterious, and yeah. you can't really know what is what is not working or what is not present or what you're not doing right, and. I think that you have to give yourself a break because you can't use those same tools sometimes. I think that you can be organized, you can do your research, you can be prepared when opportunity presents itself when it comes to, you know, having a child, but I I've talked to my my friends who have children who didn't have any trouble getting, you know, it was like they just peed on a stick and surprise <laughs> and right. and there was no it was no looking back. And I think when that happens, too, I think that you don't really have that moment to really think about, do I really want this? You know, how is this going to change my life? You know, what do I what do I want to create here? You know, because and I think for someone like me and maybe for you, if you've been through similar, similar challenges, I've spent so much time thinking about it. I've spent so much time thinking about it because I have time and I have this question, you know, hanging that was hanging in the balance for so long about, am I going to do this? Am I going to be determined? And I think a lot of people really decide, I can't do this anymore, and I don't want to. 
And then other people like myself, it just, I couldn't let it go. And I was just, I kept coming back to that place and I was like, I just have to keep going forward. So I think that for, I just really want to encourage particularly women to just be kind with themselves because I think you can be so hard on yourself about what you can't achieve and why your body might not be working in the way that you want it to. Everybody's body is a beautiful instrument and I think that there's so many factors that contribute to to what it can do. And I think just to have patience and, and you know, optimism about getting the result that you want, whatever that is. Well said. Um, anybody who is listening to this conversation, by the way, about fertility, I'm sure, Christine, you sound like you'd be open to hearing from people. Of course. If they're going through this. I want to make myself a resource to people, especially to your point about the fact that there's a million different answers out there. And sometimes one doctor will say one thing, another doctor will say the exact opposite. And in my experience, there are some really good doctors and there are some not so good doctors. So if anyone is going through this out there and uh, you're looking for advice, I would love to be that person that I was looking for earlier in my journey and couldn't necessarily find. And not too long ago, I mean, when I wrote that essay that you mentioned, um, a few years ago, no one, at least in in the public eye, was writing about that kind of that kind of issue. What's been the toughest lesson along the way? I think it goes back to being someone with very strong convictions. I'm extremely picky. I know that everyone that works, you know, directly with me or even like once removed would admit that I'm a very discerning person. I have very particular ideas about things. I I I just like things a certain way and it's not it's not easy sometimes to work with me because of that. But I also think that that brings a certain clarity to a lot of what we do and I look for that in other people too. I look for people that challenge me and and argue for the things that they believe in. And um I really love that because it really shows a sense of faith in that person's instincts. I'm I'm always a little bit suspicious if people are so easily swayed, you know, to just kind of like, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it that way. I'm like, no, tell me why you think we should do it, a you know, in a different way. And um, and I think that's been a benefit. But I think that sometimes the the tough part is when you do kind of have to you know, for the greater good, you have to let something go. And um, and it's not easy. And sometimes, you know, it bugs me, and I really feel like it was a mistake, and I have to just move on. And sometimes it ends up being a good thing. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? It's, it's so bad. Um, it's funny. It's actually not funny. But it's, it, I can remember it because I wrote it in my journal probably in the 90s. It was you should wear shorter skirts. What? Yeah. Who gave you that advice? An executive at Condé Nast. And why were they giving you that advice? I think they thought it was funny, but do you know that saying, like, there's a little bit of truth in every jest? I remember thinking, like, <laughs> even as a young person in my 20s, thinking, like, that's really, really dumb <laughs> and really dangerous. And, um, yeah, it's it's I'm 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 sure that's not super surprising to you. It's unfortunate. It is really no. unfortunate. I think. Did that, you consider at any point taking that advice? Of course not. Are you kidding me? No. I, to this day, I do not wear skirts. I mean, I didn't. I, I you know, at that point when I was, you know, in my 20s, I wore 
I, I wore Doc Martens, black tights, <laughs> and pleated like kilty skirts. Love it. With like big big sweaters from The Gap and things like that. I mean, I was not going for, you know, sort of a sexy image. But I think that, you know, I think that people that feel the need to give you an opinion about your appearance, I think that they should really check themselves. Absolutely. I I feel like we've come a long way from that. It still exists. People still get that kind of feedback. Women especially still get feedback like that. It's startling. Yes, they do. And I think that women are scrutinized for their appearance, too. And I think it's it's certainly one of the most important hallmarks of Refinery29 and how we actually talk to women and the sort of, you know, challenging of these of these traditional beauty ideals that we've, you know, long outgrown. By the way, Doc Martens, I, I didn't have Doc Martens. I had generic Doc Martens. But <laughs> throughout the 90s, I wore generic Doc Martens, um, old Levi's. Like oh. the used Levi's. Mm-hmm. I would buy men's used Levi's. Where would you get them? Ragstock in Minneapolis where I grew up. And um, and the T-shirts that I would wear with them were also from Ragstock. So. I mean, that sounds really dope. I mean, that <laughs> I think sounds we were super dressing cool. a lot alike, actually, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I know. I'm a little older than you, but I definitely think that we were kind of going for the same vibe. Absolutely. Christine, this was a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Okay, it's the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Carly Mullane. She's the founder of Galaxy.com. It is a travel website that helps you plan trips based on recommendations from your favorite celebrities. Carly always had a love of pop culture and travel. She was an entertainment reporter and producer before founding her site, and she says that she was always more interested in where a celebrity was eating rather than who they were dating or eating there with, and it inspired her to create the site. Here she is to tell you more. Hello, world. Carly Mullane here, founder of Galaxy.com, a travel website that gives you the coolest ideas straight from celebrities, because wouldn't you rather go to The Rock's favorite cookie store in Hawaii the next time you're there? Versus maybe an old coworker's recommendation that you crowdsourced off Facebook and is like five years old? I know I would. You see, I was an entertainment reporter who cared more about where a celebrity ate than the gossip around who they ate with. So I combined my love for pop culture and interest in trying new things to offer this unique voice in the travel space. I am always looking to connect with my fellow fangirls and fanboys who want accessible ways to follow in the famous footsteps of our favorite celebrities. So the next time you're planning a night out in your hometown or a vacation, I encourage you to let the stars be your guide and check out galaxy.com. I always want to know what they're eating. (laughs) True story. Congratulations, Carly. It's such a fun idea to combine your passion for travel and pop culture. I wish you continued success. And remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Carly, more about how she created her business, the questions she answered along the way. Also, don't forget if you or someone you know should be featured here on the show as a No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, or if you have a career question or you just want to say hi, shoot me a note at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I love it when you write, and I especially appreciate it when you take the time to leave us a review. Thank you so much to those of you who have been doing so. Like, for example, MPP2015, who writes, a great listen for all. I'm hooked. Well, MPP2015, I'm glad we got you hooked on No Limits. Thanks for leaving us a review. Wink. Wink. 
And finally, a shout out to our wonderful team here that helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Boncardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. What is happening here? It's just beautiful chaos. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. To be honest, I was thinking about asking him for a foot massage, and then I I just froze. This is the best gig on TV. And you know, anything can happen. That is what we do here. I'm not going to lie, the chair's a little small for my behind. (laughs) (laughs) The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.